Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra. Now, since the turn of the millennium, we've seen the price of DNA sequencing plummet, and the amount of DNA sequence available just explode. It's kind of funny because back in the early 1990s, we'd get a CD update now and then with all the data in GenBank, and it was like Christmas morning when the damn thing showed up. We would take that and have our queries all ready to roll, and you'd put it into a 286 computer and listen to it clunk away with the analysis and maybe spit out an answer the next morning, if you're lucky. (laughs) But with the advent of next-generation sequencing, we saw the amount of DNA sequence information just explode after the year 2000. And today, sequencing a genome is a breeze with high coverage at a good price, Lots of reference genomes to make the bioinformatics side a lot less hassle. It's really easy to capture lots of sequence information. And when you capture lots of sequence information, the rare weirdnesses start to stick out. Anomalies that once would have been construed as errors or contamination start to show up at increasing regularity. And a good scientist with a keen eye will start to take these patterns very seriously. That's what spawned today's episode. In the massive data sets emerging from the grasses, there's some curious patterns that suggest DNA is moving across barriers that we previously thought to be really tight or insurmountable. This phenomenon of lateral gene transfer between species, it's happening at a surprising frequency. And that's the topic of today's podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Lara Pereira. She's a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Sheffield. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Pereira. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. I'm happy you're here too, because this is a really cool evolving story. And so we're really covering what was presented in a recent review where you were the primary author. And we're talking about lateral gene transfer, horizontal gene transfer. So what does that really mean? What are we talking about? Well, um, when we talk about horizontal gene transfer or lateral gene transfer, we di- we're just talking about movements of uh, genetic material without sexual reproduction involved. That's all. So usually the genetic material transfers from parents to progenies in a vertical way, let's say, when it's not like that, is what we call lateral gene transfer. Okay, but this wouldn't be necessarily lateral, like gene transfer for something that maybe is apomictic or, or uh, happening from asexual reproduction. We're talking about transfer from even one species to another sometimes, right? Yeah, exactly. That's totally true. Uh, we usually say when it's not sexual reproduction, and we should say when it's not sexual or asexual reproduction. That's, that's right. Yeah, so this is some other way in which genetic material is moving from one species to another, sometimes even well, one species to another, crossing these lines that usually are very strong barriers, correct? I mean, you're going across species sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Actually, we are always across species. So the, 
the ones we identify are always across species and usually quite distant species. Uh, so that's the way we are sure that it's not uh, coming from hybridization or some kind of sexual reproduction. Yeah, so this is really cool stuff because when you look across all plants, we know that bacteria do this all the time, right? They they'll take up back they'll take up other genes from the environment, but where does lateral gene transfer occur outside of bacteria? Like say plants or in animals? Yeah, uh, well, as you said, in, in prokaryotes has been a known process for a very long time. In eukaryotes, it's been more recent. But there are multiple reports across all kingdoms. So we have we can find examples of movement from bacteria to plants, uh, from bacteria to fungi, uh, across uh, plants, across animals. So there are many examples. Um, of course, it's not the most common thing happening in nature, but it happens sometimes, and some of these examples is what uh, scientists are just kind of uh, picking up when they are lucky. And when they're lucky, right? So, so if you had to take a guess, a good hypothesis, why is this idea of lateral gene transfer important as an evolutionary mechanism? Um, what we see uh, in some of these examples, not in all of them, is that the genes that are transferred uh, give the recipient an evolutionary advantage. Uh, probably we see that in the cases that we are able to identify because if we identify them is because they were conserved, they were selected for. If they were conserved within the species is probably because they were offering some kind of advantage. The way I see it is um, like a shortcut to evolution. So usually evolution is a long process, might take uh, millions of years to develop a phenotype because everything comes from very small changes. So usually small mutations that have a very small effect, the ones that are good are retained and that generates a pool of natural diversity that at some point can become a new trait or a, a, an advantage in, in the species. What we see with lateral gene transfer is that that process is much faster because you're passing from uh, one species to another one, a gene that is already optimized. So that's, that just gives an, an, an evolutionary advantage to the recipient species. And, you know, you and I are uh, both plant biologists, so we started this conversation without really talking about lateral gene transfer in the context of your uh, review and your research. But what kind of plants are more likely to show evidence of lateral gene transfer? Uh, the truth is that we don't really know that, or I would like to be conservative and say that we don't know that. Uh, most of the studies have been done in grasses. So we can say that lateral gene transfer is widespread in grasses. Uh, we see it in, in many different grasses, uh, in, uh, among different groups, between different families. Uh, so we have tons of examples in grasses. We are not so sure about other groups. Uh, it, that doesn't mean that they don't exist. 
uh, I think it's more a lack of uh, systematic studies trying to find lateral gene transfer in in albicots. Yeah, so we're seeing this predominantly in grasses, maybe because that's where people have looked the hardest. So if, if I'm yeah. understanding right, but but it seems to be against dogma. We normally talk about genomes as being very strict about the material that goes in and goes out and that you don't see a lot of lateral gene transfer or we, or they would resist lateral gene transfer. So how does what you're discovering really contradict that dogma? Yeah, that's a very good question. I would like to know too, how this happens. The truth is that I agree with you. Uh, it's, it's sometimes difficult to believe that in eukaryote genomes that are very well protected, so they are inside the nucleus, they are packed. Uh, most organisms are multicellular, so that's an additional layer of, of protection to the DNA material. How can this happen? Uh, we don't know exactly how it happens. The review actually uh, sets the ground or puts there some of the examples or some of the knowledge that we think that could be related or could uh, pave the, the way to understand lateral gene transfer. But the truth is that we don't really know the mechanism. But what is clear is that it's happening. Uh, so we do know it happens. Uh, and we try to make a parallelism with uh, transformation techniques, because at the end, nobody's questioning how this happens when we are creating a transgenic plant. But at the end, it's, it's quite, of, quite, the, quite the same, I would say. Uh, for example, in bioballistic uh, approach in, for, to generate transgenic plants, you just have uh, small particles with DNA, you bombard cells, and somehow the DNA that was in these particles gets transferred to a new individual, right? So in that case, we are also uh, overcoming all those barriers. And how did the genomics age really contribute to this? I mean, uh, were people looking for this, uh, for looking for evidence of lateral gene transfer, or did it just appear and maybe, you know, think it was contamination? Or uh, how did researchers really find the solid evidence of lateral gene transfer? I think this is a very important question. It's, it's actually the key point. Uh, we are able now to see this because of how much genomics has evolved in the last few decades. So the, the option of really investigate many different genomes uh, is what allows us to identify these incongruences in the, in the phylogeny and go forward, follow up them to try to see if they are real LGT, uh, lateral gene transfer, or uh, what, as you were saying, possible contaminants or any other explanation. And yeah, of course, we always think that it could be contamination because at the end, uh, yeah, we know that when we are working in the lab with samples, it's very easy to make a mistake. Uh, even if you don't make any mistake, you do have organisms uh, around your plant uh, and when collecting the sample, sometimes it might be impossible to separate the, the target from the contaminant. But 
we do deal with this kind of uh, contamination issue uh, with in, in different aspects. One of them is, for example, having uh, uh, several independent replicates for everything. So we try to use uh, sequencing data that come from different plants when we can, even from different labs. That is not that difficult right now because everybody's sequencing at a very fast uh, rhythm. So we do have tons of sequencing data that we can uh, interrogate. And we see that uh, these genes are usually, when we find lateral gene transfers, they are usually conserved in these independent replicates. We also look for gene expression. So if it's a contaminant, it's pro probably not expressed. Uh, so if we see that the gene is expressed, it's probably because it belongs to the genome. Uh, we also tend to, in, in our lab, for example, we are focusing on grass to grass transfers. So we are not investigating whether bacteria or insects or any other kind of organism passed genes to grasses, but only from one grass to a different species of grass. So in that, in that case, I would say that it's more difficult to have a contaminant because, yeah, most of these cases in this, in this situation, we don't have uh, the grasses growing together, for example. So we know that it's nearly impossible to have donor DNA in our sample. Yeah, it's a really important point. I know my first instinct when we got strange sequencing information was to throw away the stuff that looked like a contaminant. And it turns out that it really was a contaminant. When we first did some sequencing of gene expression throughout a strawberry plant, we found all kinds of evidence of the pathogens and the insects and snail eggs and everything else that were uh, there present on the plant. And so we came up with a population study of a plant just from the stuff that our bioinformatics folks wanted to throw away. So pretty cool. Yeah. So we're <laughs> so there's a lot of interesting things sometimes. So we're we're speaking with Dr. Lara Pereira, and she's a postdoc at University of Sheffield, and we're covering her recent paper that came out in Plants, People, and Planet in December of 2022, which goes into the interesting intricacies of lateral gene transfer and the surprising appearance of DNA sequence from one species in another even things that appear to be unrelated. So uh, this is the Talking Biotech Podcast by Collabora, and we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Collabora, the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Collabora, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Collabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Lara Pereira. She's a postdoc at the University of Sheffield, and we're covering the idea of lateral gene transfer that in her work and the work of her laboratory, there is uh, significant evidence that grasses tend to exchange genetic material with each other 
not through sexual means. So it suggests that we're living in a world surrounded by transgenic organisms <laughs> that nobody really cares about. So that's pretty good. Um, so this is all really uh, great work. It's a really good review because it's it's right to the point and really interesting. And so who are the other collaborators on this type of work? In in this review, I've worked with uh, Luke Dunning and Pascal Antoine Christine. They are they were both at that point my supervisors, and they have an extent career working on lateral gene transfer. I'm actually quite new to the topic, uh, so yeah. They Pascal Antoine was the first one starting this research line, while he was working on C4 uh, photosynthesis in a species uh, called Allotropsis semialata, and just. While studying phylogenetics of, of C4 genes, he uh, by chance discovered that one of, of the main enzymes of the C4 pathway in Allotropsis was transferred from another grass. And this was very cool because Allotropsis semialata is a species that has uh, a huge intraspecific diversity in photosynthetic type. And we he was able to show that part of that uh, incredible diversity was due to lateral gene transfer among grasses. After that, uh, Luke has continued uh, this line of research, and yeah, we I'm I'm a postdoc in his lab, and we are working also in trying to identify how important uh, lateral gene transfer is in pangenome uh, variation. So we know that uh, individuals have different gene content, uh, even if they are from the same species. And we are trying to identify whether part of that difference in, in gene content is due to lateral gene transfer. Yeah, and if you're interested in the original time when uh, Dr. Dunning was on with me in the podcast, that was uh, episode 295. Seems like years ago now, um, but uh, he was a guest not that long ago where we started to cover this topic. And when we look at um, across grasses or across plants, and we kind of touched on this before, I was suggesting, you know, how does this happen? And you know, and really, your answer was a good one. It, it doesn't really matter because we do it with uh, biolistics and other things all the time. DNA gets integrated. But is there a good hypothesis of how that DNA gets from one grass to another? Is it happening possibly through the gametes? Or, or how, how, do, how is it thought that this might happen? That's what we cover in the review, exactly. Uh, just go through all the possible hypotheses or what we thought that there were the possible hypotheses. Uh, one of them would be a vector mediator and the vector could be uh, a, a virus, bacteria, some kind of pathogen, insect that is sucking in one plant and then infecting another one or sucking in another one and somehow transfers the material. So that's one possibility. Another possibility we consider is through inasculation, that is uh, natural grafting among plants. Uh, in this case, there is also physical contact among cells. So it could potentially offer the opportunity to interchange genes. And uh, the other, uh, or for us, I would say the most reliable hypothesis would be what we are calling now 
reproductive contamination. So it, it would be kind of illegitimate pollination. Uh, so a pollen from a different species is somehow contaminating the, the, the reproductive process. Yeah, I'm really interested in this idea of natural grafting. So this would be maybe two plants that were living next to each other that grew together, or is this happening underground in the roots? What what do you think is happening there? We think that it might happen on the roots, uh, at least in, in some species. Uh, that's what we see in Allotropsis semialata, for example, that is one of the main models we use. And we see that these Allotropsis plants grow uh, in multi-species clumps. So somehow they are very close together and in, in physical contact with other species. Uh, they uh, develop bulbs and they have, uh, yeah, they have to some extent uh, vegetative reproduction um, underground. So we think that in that scenario, it could be possible that somehow this uh, physical interaction, physical contact could uh, give rise to gene interchange. But this is all an hypothesis and it's actually quite controversial talking about grafting in monocots because until very recently, most people thought it was impossible. Uh, and a recent paper from last year showed that this can happen, although it's not very easy. So uh, grafting is possible in monocots, but it has to be in embryonic tissue so it, it could be difficult, but it's, it's a plausible hypothesis. You know, there's so many different types of grasses out there, and so many have been sequenced, and so many have been looked at. Is there any particular combination that, or particular species, or maybe, you know, two pairs of species, that this happens at a more common frequency, that you tend to see, wow, this one always is infected with a little piece of this other one? Yeah, we are actually seeing these kind of patterns. Uh, for example, in Allotropsis, we see that one very common donor is another grass uh, called uh, Timida triandra. Uh, we identified several genomic fragments in Allotropsis that come from Timida. Another uh, case, and this is unpublished, but it's my current work, we are also seeing recurrent transfers in maize from Suluagaya bulbosa, that is a Mexican weed from the, from the Centrini panicoide uh, grasses. So uh, we, we do think that there is a pattern that is mainly uh, caused by biogeographical patterns. So uh, plants that grow together in the same region are probably the ones that are passing genes to each other, right? Uh, that's what makes sense at the end. So in, in the maize-sulvagaea pair, uh, it, it fits really well because maize was domesticated in Mexico uh, and, and this grass uh, still is distributed in, in the same region where maize was domesticated. So it would make uh, sense that uh, is the actual donor. But this is all preliminary results, so uh, I, I cannot be like super explicit on everything yet. 
Yeah, I understand. It's still a very early field. But I, you also mentioned in your review, and you touched on this briefly, this idea of multiple pollination. And it seems like a real stretch to me because of what we know about the safeguards that protect the plant from outcrossing. But how could this happen feasibly? Could you give us like an idea of a, for example, maybe it happens this way uh, to describe this idea of multiple pollination? Yep. Uh, so there is a paper uh, that made this work in, in rice. So they develop a technique using, as you were saying, multiple pollinations. They call it uh, re repeated pollination, actually, in, in rice. And what they do is they inosculate, uh, they emasculate the, the rice flowers from a cultivar. Then they put pollen from a wild species that is a, a very distant relative from rice. They wait for a few hours. Uh, actually, I think it was 48 hours. And after 48 hours, they pollinate again the plant, but this time with pollen from the same plant, from the same species. And after that, a progeny develops and they just uh, go through the progenies in the paper. I think they talk about thousands of seedlings. So it's still a very rare event, but it happens. And it, uh, in the progenies, they identified plants that had different phenotypes. They started to look at those plants that had different phenotypes and they uh, identified genetic material from the the wild pollen from the wild species. Uh, this genetic material was not uh, hybridization in the in the broad sense of the word, because it was not chromosomes, complete chromosomes, or even half of the genome. It was just less than 0.5% of, of the genome in those seedlings was from the donor. So Somehow, again, we don't know exactly how, but somehow that foreign pollen is able to get to the nucleus and contaminate the process, not uh, completely, because at the end it's not hybridization, so we cannot find a set of chromosomes from the wild species. We can find only very small parts of the DNA there. And most of it was transposable elements. So uh, what we hypothesize, but again, it's just an hypothesis, is that something like this could happen in nature, right? So flowers are there, pollen from many different species uh, can fly around, and pollen from a different species could land in a flower and somehow contaminate the reproductive process. Uh, we don't know exactly how. One of the hypotheses could be that the pollen starts, starts growing. At some point, it degenerates, so it cannot grow until the micropylla and, and actually uh, mm, fertilize the eggs. But the DNA uh, somehow gets in the middle so in, in, the, in those tissues, and gets uh, hijacked by, by the new uh, successful 
pollen tube that is able to fertilize. So that's one of the, the hypotheses we have. But again, all, all of this is just based on uh, a few studies that we could find in the literature uh, that were doing this kind of stuff in environmental, in experimental settings. And yeah, still we don't know the molecular details. We just know the outcome. So it is happening. It seems like a plausible mechanism to me, though. It seems like it's the one that isn't supposed to be there, just starts to germinate and aborts and leaves its genetic material behind. That might be able to be pushed through by a growing pollen tube by another a successful fertilization event. So it's plausible, you know, and, you're, and like you say, you're not seeing a whole genome, you're seeing part. So interesting stuff. But do you, do you see this in dicots too, or has this been looked at in dicots, or does it seem to be predominantly a grass phenomenon? I don't think it, have, it has been seen. I think the only uh, studies that talk about LGT in dicots, to my knowledge, are the ones focusing on transposable elements. So we do know that transposable elements have moved among uh, eudicots, uh, among uh, dicots species. Uh, for example, there are cases in, in tomato, in, in grapevine, in several other species. But in those cases, the study was looking specifically to transposable elements. To my knowledge, nobody has looked at uh, coding genes. And coming back to the pollination stuff, I don't uh, recall any study showing this in, in dicots. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. Again, it's maybe nobody has done it. Right, nobody's looked at it. Like like an aspiring postdoc who wanted to set out and start her own stellar program, right? <laughs> <laughs> Could build a career on this, hint, hint, right? Yeah. Well, this is what's interesting to me is that, so, and, and this puts it, if you look at the politics of the EU and how stringent they are about having any kind of plants that are transgenic or even gene edited now, how does your findings or how do the findings in your laboratory change the perception or do they that here we have pieces of DNA, large pieces of DNA moving from one plant species to another, not regulated, not tested. Does that change the conversation at all? I think it does. I think this is the most crucial question. Uh, uh, in my opinion, if this is happening in nature, the regulation should be much more flexible because, uh, yeah, the, the, you know, the idea of uh, GMOs being dangerous and all that is because we were interfering with nature. We were changing the rules of the game. And what we are seeing now is that we are actually not doing that. It's something that happens in nature. It happens rarely, sure but it does happen. And we know that already just looking at Agrobacterium tumefaciens. Uh, so we do know that we are somehow using molecular techniques that are present in the nature to uh, transform in a more targeted way. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. 
On the other hand, uh, I, and I think this coin has two sides, uh, we could also think of the opposite. So until now, we all thought, okay, we can have GMOs out there because they are not gonna transfer the transgene to different species because they cannot cross. Right now, maybe we should be a little bit more careful with that statement because we know that genes are trans can be transferred even if that's rare, but they can be transferred from one species to a totally different unrelated species. So that could mean that uh, specific genes that are, for example, yeah, against uh, weeds or against um, pathogens, herbicides could be transferred to other species that are uh, growing in the same land. So I think, yeah, uh, in my opinion, what we have to do with GMOs is have a, an appropriate uh, level of regulation. We have to be careful, but we cannot push back uh, with a technique that can really help to to solve all the issues that we are facing now. No, I think that's a really fair statement. I really like the way you show both sides of the coin, right? Because it also seems to me that with weed resistance coming up in the U.S. especially, in places where they grow a lot of herbicide-tolerant crops, weed resistance we know is increasing. And that would seem like a perfect place to make that discovery, that you could look at some of these populations of resistant weeds, especially those that are more similar to the herbicide-resistant crops that are grown, and maybe look for evidence of horizontal gene transfer because it would be easy to find. And it would be really good to know if this is happening in some sort of regular basis. And you know, there's another really good project for an aspiring postdoc. Yeah, that's actually a really cool idea. <laughs> It's already been done. The experiment's been happening for 30 years. So, well, this is really, really good stuff. I appreciate your time very much on, on this. If people wanted to learn more about your project and maybe find the review, um, are you on Twitter or social media or a place where we could learn more? Yeah, I am on Twitter. Uh, and yeah, we also have information in the, in the Luke Dunning's lab website. Uh, so We'll be happy to to talk at any point with anyone that could be interested about this. We are open for collaborations also if some scientist is uh, listening to us. No, very good. And what, what's your Twitter handle, your Twitter username? Uh, it's Lar, uh, Lar, L-A-R-R-R, L-A-R-R-R. Okay, so L-A-R-R-L-A-R-R. R-R-R. Three R's <laughs> in the second one. Why <laughs> yeah, did they put really it in difficult the... to choose a Twitter name because everything was taken. So I had to, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I'll do is I'll put it in the show notes and we'll figure it out perfect. later. Thank no, that you. sounds perfect. Well, Laura Pereira, thank you so much for your time. This is really interesting stuff. The thing that gets me so excited about it is that it's a rule breaker, right? It, it's showing us that biology isn't playing by the rules that we always thought were there. And I uh, really appreciate your time. So thank you very much for joining me today. 
Thank you. It was a real pleasure to be here. And as always, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Write reviews on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you consume podcast media. It's the increasing number of reviews that help dilute the one negative one. <laughs> the guy who didn't like it, who was didn't like that I was making fun of UFO science. So uh, write a review. Help me uh, defend our honor as a scientific organization. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Uh, it's it's the weekly listeners that make this possible and really good guests. And so thank you so much for listening. And we'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.